2: Welcome to Beyond Surviving, the safe space for survivors of childhood sexual abuse to receive support, resources, and share their stories. Beyond Surviving is about freedom, healing, connection, and even laughter and fun. Most importantly, it's about letting go of the pain of abuse and finally moving on. I'm Rachel Grant. For those of you who don't yet know me, I've been a sexual abuse recovery coach since 2007 and am the author of Beyond Surviving, The Final Stage of Recovery from Sexual Abuse. I work with survivors who are sick and tired of feeling broken and unfixable, and I help them let go of the pain of abuse and move on with their lives. You can learn more about me and the Beyond Surviving program at www.rachelgrantcoaching.com. In this week's episode, I'm so glad to be exploring and discovering what you need to know in order to pursue your passion and your purpose even after childhood abuse.
1: Hi everybody, this is Raimi, like Del Raimi, best-selling author of Living Life as an Exclamation Point, point. and today I'm really excited to be talking to Rachel Grant. Rachel is a trauma, recovery, and relationship coach. She works with her clients to identify their patterns of thought and behavior that keep them from recovering from past abuse. And today she's going to be talking to us about the five steps to finding your purpose as an adult survivor of child abuse. And the reason I wanted to do this is as I was reaching uh, researching my own book, Rachel, what I found was that when people can't get at their purposes and their passion for life, mm-hmm. it's often because they're currently being being invalidated in their present environment or they've gone through this invalidation in the past, they're still kind of carrying around this head trash. So I really wanted to take an opportunity not to be totally Pollyanna about finding your purpose, but to help those people who have had some abuse in their past relationships. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, So good morning. Or good afternoon, good wherever you are. So, tell us a little bit about your work and, and what you're doing and what you're up to. Mm. Well, you hit
2: it right. Um, I've been working for the past five years as a trauma recovery coach. And when I set out kind of thinking about the work that I wanted to do and the purpose that I wanted to have, um, I kept coming back to um, this area of work and wanting to work with adult survivors to move them through you know, those areas of life where they were basically stuck as a result of abuse. Mm-hmm. And so I work individually with clients and also have some groups that I run and just lead them through the program that I've developed that is also my own program. It's what I used in my own journey um, of recovery. And so it's really exciting to do this work with adult survivors and to see them reaching that place at the end where it's kind of open and available to them to explore new areas of life that weren't available before. Mm-hmm.
1: It's interesting that you mentioned the word stuck because that's a, a really common question that I get. Mm-hmm. And do you find that um, a common reason for being stuck does have to do with abuse, or do you, you think being stuck has many reasons?
2: Yeah, I think so. If you know Abuse is a part of your story. It's a part of your experience that oftentimes what's happening for you in your present experience harkens back to kind of the thoughts and patterns that were established when you were abused. So, you know, you basically kind of keep going around the same mountain over and over and over again, and, and we try and try to change our behavior, but until we dig down to those underlying kind of thoughts and patterns, we're just not able to pop out of
1: it. hmm hmm yeah the the, uh, head trash can circle above us unmercifully sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So in the work that you do with adult survivors of child abuse, uh, what do you find to be those areas where people are the most constrained and able to find their purpose?
2: Well, I I think it comes down to about three different areas. Um, The first being relationships. Um, Just able to enter into intimate and open relationships. Mm-hmm. And you know we really do have a pers- purpose when it comes to you know who we are for the other people in our lives. And when we're stuck in patterns of thinking about who we are, our value, that really impacts our ability to be there for other people and to be in healthy relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other area is, is career. Um, you know, we often find ourselves not choosing very powerfully as a result of abuse. Um, yeah. Our relationship to choosing becomes a bit skewed. So we end up in um, careers that are just by circumstance or chance, as opposed to like we really chose this for ourselves. We don't really understand what values we have and why we're there. Uh-huh. Yeah, and finally, I would say that, um, you know, finding a place where we feel like we belong in our community and that we're contributing to kind of a greater purpose and and what that might be and what that might look like is sometimes a struggle because there's a real sense of kind of being on the outside, not belonging, that needs to be overcome before we can kind of find our purpose.
1: Uh Yeah, that's interesting, the feeling like you're on the outside. I really had never Mm -hmm. thought of it that way.
2: Yeah, I think it's, um, of all the um, adult survivors that I work with, I think this is one of the most common, you know, false beliefs or experiences that we have, Um, especially, you know, when the abuse occurs at a young Mm -hmm. age. It's kind of this moment where you're forced to grow up a little bit quicker than you might have liked to, and you see the world through a very different lens. So I remember very distinctly for myself, you know, uh, as a 10-year-old, you know, playing with my friends and and trying to just kind of play Barbies or do whatever, but there was also this part of me that thought, you know, there's other stuff going on in this world, and there are things that, you know, I'm thinking about and dealing with, and they just didn't see it or relate to it at all. Mm -hmm. So it made me feel very, you know, kind of on a very different path. Mm-hmm. Always kind of looking down and trying to look in and see that world, but always a little distinct. And so that was a thought that I really had to um, challenge and work through and so that I could get past this idea that, you know, I don't belong, I don't have anything to contribute. Yeah.
1: Well, it's funny when we're talking about these being the areas where people feel the most constrained, these are three really broad areas. They are. Yeah. 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 do you find that they intersect with one another? Do you find that people who are are surviving abuse tend to hang out just in one of the areas? Or do they intersect Mm. always?
2: No, it's interesting. Sometimes the compensation for abuse is that you can be very successful in one area and just be really struggling in another. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, I um, pretty much excelled at school and academics and those sorts of things, But kind of emotionally, socially was, you know, in a lot of trouble in a lot of ways and had a very hard time. Mm -hmm. So um, it impacted me more on that level than in my career. I I always had kind of a sense of where I wanted to be going and what I wanted to be doing. Mm -hmm. Even though that evolved over time, I didn't feel like I just couldn't figure something out. But when it came to relationships and knowing if I was really in a relationship that was good for me and making good choices about that. That was harder sometimes, yeah. So there, there's sometimes times where it's, you get you get the whole whole shebang. There are other times when you get to, you just focus in on one area and have trouble there.
1: Yeah, it, it seems by my observation that you have somebody who is extremely good in finances, but one of their areas, such as relationships, will be terrible. And yeah. other people are really good at, uh, their health is really strong, but their finances totally suck. That's right. It, it seems like there's almost this, not even a, opposing forces... But it's always like there's this one area that they're mm. really struggling with while all the other areas seem just fine. Yeah. For, for regular people, if they, if there is such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. Yeah. I think we've all survived, yeah. we've all uh, had abuse to some mm. level or another, don't you think?
2: I agree. I agree. Yeah. And I think a lot of the principles that I teach apply across the board mm-hmm. um, for, you know, people who haven't been abused as well. Um, it's just the, Kind of the patterns that we get stuck in, the relationship to ourselves or to others that ends up blocking us from moving forward in a particular area. Uh
1: uh Mm -hmm. I talk about it in my opening chapter. is called Overcoming Invalidation, and, and one of the first things I do is identify what it looks like because I'm so amazed at people who don't realize they're being abused. And it can come in the the subtlest way of not even belittlement, but just when you come away feeling like you're maybe not real or like you're not important, Mm -hmm. even that little slightest whisper is still a form of abuse. Yeah. And even that one little thing can end up tripping us up for life, you know, as we set up these patterns to protect ourselves.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's
1: right. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think are the most, well, before I ask you this question, on, on this question that we're wrapping up here, do you have any tips for these three areas for people to begin mm-hmm. to identify their purpose if they find themselves in one of these areas?
2: Well, yeah, it's very distinct depending on which area you're in, right? Um, you know, relationships require focusing in on certain topics like intimacy, vulnerability, dealing with um, fears of abandonment, right? So doing work and focusing on those sorts of um, things really becomes where the attention goes uh-huh. when it's career, that has a lot more to do with the relationship to success, the relationship to value, to what you're contributing. Can you make a difference? Are you living out your passion? How closely is are your values aligned with what you're doing on your day to day job? So exploring those sorts of questions and thinking about that area, uh-huh. and I think when it comes to the you know not belonging, that is one of the you know toughest stories or ideas to kind of focus on and and work with, but beginning to notice um, where you actually do belong. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, a lot of times we develop tunnel vision and we get stuck on an idea about ourselves or about other people and we fail to notice all of the evidence around us that is actually contrary, you know. So a lot of times with my clients, what we work on is just starting to pay attention to, well, who do you belong to and, and where, you know, what communities do you feel comfortable and that you're making a difference in and what evidence can you gather to really show that that's the case? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. So for anyone who is feeling constrained in any area of life, your tip would be to make a list or start start to notice where you belong. Mm-hmm. So whether it's career, relationship, community, whatever it is.
2: Yeah, Yeah, asking yourself questions, you know, that bring you into in tune you into your values and what's really important to you, um, I think, is always a nice place to start. Because again, going back to the not choosing, a lot of times we we can't find our purpose or we're, we're in something but we don't know why it's not working, and it's because it's not aligned with who we really are or what we really value. So taking a step back and doing some reflection on you know, what is really important to me, what do I most highly value, and who do I want to be, rather than just the um, dropping into the kind of habit of just do, 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 mm-hmm. like let me mm-hmm. just get out there and try something or make it happen, allowing yourself the room and space to get present to what's important and a value to you first
1: mm-hmm. is,
2: I think, a great place to start.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when we're asking ourselves this question about what do I value, um, are we, give us some guidance on how to ask that question of ourselves? Mm-hmm.
2: Well, one of my favorite activities or approaches to that question is to write a list of everything that you've ever wanted to um, do or have. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like a bucket list in some sense, but you just allow yourself a lot of room and freedom to explore anything from, you know, when you were a little person and wanted to be an astronaut or a fireman or a ballerina to, you know, I want to own a house on the beach and you just write this list. And when you go through that list and look at what you've come up with, by taking that and changing it into these to be statements, um, As in, you know, if you want to be a ballerina, it might be that what you're really wanting to express is to be uh, creative, you know, to be a part of a cultural experience or something like that. If you want to be a world traveler, you know, it's about being um, well-rounded or being exposed to other things, to be adventurous, right? Mm -hmm. So as you go through and are transitioning these things that you've wanted to do or have to statements about who you want to be, your values start to show up over and over again about being adventurous, being playful, being successful, being generous, right? Uh-huh. So that helps you kind of tune in to what those top level values are.
1: Uh-huh. Uh-huh.
2: And that's a exercise that Mary Nemeth actually um, developed
1: in oh, her yes. book. Yeah, two of her books. Yeah,
2: yeah. And I like it, and I've adapted it a little bit, but I think it's a nice place to start. Uh-huh. You know, because yeah, when you ask somebody what do you value, it's like we try to give, you know, it's hard the right ask. answer, yeah, it's <laughs> you know, answer. and so to actually get down to what you value, um, that exercise is actually really wonderful.
1: So, if I have on my bucket list, uh, actually, I do have this on my bucket list to find the best cinnamon roll <laughs> in whatever town I'm in, <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> which of course makes me want to travel. So, pulling a value out of that might be, uh, adventure sent, being more adventurous or having more fun or, or experiencing Mm -hmm. variety. So you begin to look at what is it about that? You know, um, it's not necessarily a feeling we're looking for. You're really looking for more beingness.
2: That's right. The way I ask the question sometimes when it's hard to move from the having and doing to the being is if you had that, what would it give you access to? Mm. Right. So if you had a nice car, what would it give you access to? Oh, you know, I'd feel powerful or I'd feel successful. Right. Or I'd be successful. Or, you know, if, if I have a house on the beach, then it, you know, I would have access to being a part of nature and being peaceful. Right.
1: Or I could write a blog about the best cinnamon rolls. <laughs> that's right. There you go. <laughs>
2: it's not about, you know, sharing yourself with others, right? And so that might be something that's really of high value to you, which,
1: yeah. That
2: might
1: have been a good goal as a seven-year-old. Mommy, I want to find the best cinnamon roll. and be a, a connoisseur. Right. <laughs> that was not on my list when I was young, by the way. Um, all right. So let me move on to the next one. Uh, what prevents adult survivors from finding or embracing their purpose in life?
2: Yeah, and you know, this is a there are many, many levels to this question, but I think when I when I reflected on this, I tried to pull out what I think are kind of the top three, Mm -hmm. the the main areas, and within that you'll find many, many other kind of subtopics. Mm -hmm. But I would say the first thing is the the relationship to the to our self-identity, kind of who we are, what we're up to, what's important to us. Um, is really um, burdened by false beliefs and negative patterns of behavior. Mm-hmm. And when this happens, we end up quite often sabotaging our relationships or our careers or our you know social um, societies that we're running you know in the circles of. Mm-hmm. And so what that does then is leave us feeling even um, worse off, like that we really don't have a place, we can't contribute, we don't have anything of value to add. So those false beliefs and those negative patterns really get in the way of us finding our purpose because, you know, there's just, you're constantly feeling burdened and oppressed Mm, and of no value. Right. I would say the next thing would be that, um, you know, when, when it comes to this idea of choosing powerfully um, that the, the second piece of that is really about being able to set boundaries and, as adult survivors often talk about, you know, setting boundaries is a real challenge. And so what ends up happening is you say yes to so many things or say yes to all of the wrong things. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, you've just, you have a whole world around you that you're just wading through and finding your purpose becomes, it's like, you know, the needle in the haystack. You're just committed to too many different things. You can't focus your energy in on one area and really develop it and see if that feels like a good fit, right?
1: Yeah, it's funny because I've heard this this phrase about setting boundaries for a 100 years since I've been on the planet, and I always struggled with it, but someone told me one time that if you think in terms of setting, uh, how corporations set policy, mm. uh, that you can do the same thing as a, as a person or as an individual, and you do that by looking at your past experiences of what worked and what didn't. So when Mm -hmm. I was very young, fresh out of high school, I dated a drug addict, as an instance, as for for instance someone may say, and then decided, well, I'll never do that again. So that Mm -hmm. would not only be a boundary, but it's also a personal policy. And and when I heard that theory, it made so much more sense to me. I like that, yeah. Yeah, because you run (laughs) across these people that that say um, indignantly, you know, I'm not going to talk to you about that because that violates my boundary. And that ends up kind of feeling belittling when somebody says that to you. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So the idea of boundaries was confusing to me for a long time.
2: Yeah. And I think it's confusing to, to a lot of us. And it's one of those um, kind of pop culture phrases that has become so used yes. that it's yes. almost yes. lost its meaning. Like um, I'm go you know, and so about, taking it back to something very cent- central <laughs> to just, you know, where are where are your lines in the sand? You know, what are you going to go for? What are you going to put up with? What's not going to be, you know, workable or doable for you? Um, it's kind of how I, I think about it and talk about it. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Yeah. I love the line in the sand because that's easy. It's easy to see when somebody's crossed that line. Right. Yeah. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully it's easy.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I can... and I think one of the things that I work with my clients around is part of the reason why we often don't know where that line is, is because we haven't defined it for ourselves, mm-hmm. nor have we very clearly communicated it to the people around us. Mm-hmm. So um, they don't even know sometimes that they're crossing a line because we haven't been able to voice that. Mm-hmm. And so that's another, you know, kind of subcategory area, right, where it's not just about being able to set boundaries. It's about having a relationship to your voice mm-hmm. and your right to choose and, and draw those lines that also can be difficult for adult survivors. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if you if you have a situation such as uh, you've been married for 20 years and your mm. husband's having an affair and you've known mm. about it for, let's say, five or six years, now he's made the decision to leave, obviously, you know, maybe he's not hitting you or, you know, doing anything physically abusive, but it's still abuse because he's belittling you by having this affair in front of, in front of you for five or six years. Now, mm. that line has been crossed and you've allowed it to be crossed for a number of years, how right. does someone now begin to? How am I trying to ask it? It almost seems impossible to draw a line in the sand once you've allowed it to be crossed for a period of time. Hmm. Does that right. Make sense?
2: Yeah. 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 I, I understand your question. So, yeah, when you know, drawing lines, they're they're always wiggly, right? Any line that you draw on the sand could actually move oh, based on who you're line. with.
1: Yeah.
2: You know the circumstance, what's happening. So if in the marriage, you know, you start out the marriage with an agreement of it's going to be a monogamous marriage, it's not an open marriage or anything like that, and you come to the point where you discover that your partner is cheating or your partner is, you know, seeing somebody else, and you don't kind of bring it to the table for conversation, Mm -hmm. and it just becomes this, you know, thing that's in the room that nobody's talking about Mm – then there are two things to look at. There's actually responsibility for both parties, right? There's the responsibility of the person who's cheating and kind of breaking the rules of the relationship or the agreements of the relationship. And then there's the person who is not communicating. Mm-hmm. So the person who's not communicating is responsible for that, mm-hmm. right? And you have to take ownership of that. But you're not communicating is not what's causing the affair. Mm-hmm. So making sure to not put those two things together, right? Mm -hmm. Keeping those things separate. Mm -hmm. So how do you get into communication um, after a long time has passed and kind of redraw the boundaries? Well, first you have to acknowledge your responsibility. I believe, I think, you know, coming to your partner and saying, you know, I know this has been going on and I haven't said anything, which may give you the impression that I was okay with it. (laughs) Um, But no, you know what, here at this moment, it's really time for me to kind of address this and and I can't let it just go on anymore. I need to have the conversation about it. I need us to address this. And so then you, go ahead.
1: Well, I was going to ask if if hope plays a role in it, is there a point where a person is still hopeful about a situation unfolding in a certain way and expectation before they can draw a line in the sand? You know, or do they, you know what I mean? I could see where... I'm dancing around the bush here. A friend of mine is actually going through this after 25 years of marriage, and she's still hopeful that he'll wake up mm-hmm. and leave the other woman, mm-hmm. and the rest of us are like, you know, get over it. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing where, our morning am wondering where is it her hopefulness that prevents her from drawing a line in the sand? I think that's sure. what I'm trying to ask.
2: I see. Yeah, of course. Yeah, until... Until there's a relationship to the potential outcomes, see, sometimes we just don't get in communication because we don't want to hear the answer. Yes, right yeah. So um, there you have to reach that place where um, the cost of not being in communication outweighs the payoff of the kind of pretend safety and security, mm-hmm. right. And so until you reach that place, you do just kind of hide and let things pass and let things,
1: you know, slide. So it's almost a a false sense of of security and safety that Mm -hmm. a boundary or a new policy would actually create a new sense of safety and security. Is that right?
2: Yeah. And this is where the mind, you know, it gets us into these, you know, crazy loops because On the one hand, if, you know, the person were to actually go to the partner and say, okay, you know, we need to have this conversation. Yeah, the answer might be, no, I'm not going to leave this other person and this relationship is over. And that's hard. Like, that's not going to be a fun day. But the life that you're leading is not fun either, right? (laughs) But the problem is, is that mentally and emotionally, We get stuck into believing that the way it's set up is actually okay. Or, you know, it's the payoffs are kind of outweighing what our perceived costs are. And so, you know, a lot of the work that I do with clients around relationships, around, you know, abuse is starting to challenge and think about, okay, you think that this behavior is giving you X. Let's look and see if it really is, right? And what are you getting out of? Any particular behavior, you know, anything we do is there because we think there's a payoff, right? Or because we think that it's really helping us avoid something that we want to, you know, not experience, that we're afraid of or pain or hurt, right?
1: So, this, so this, so your best tip for this uh, number two question is in order to get out of Hopa Hopa land, you have to identify (laughs) what the hope really is (laughs) Mm -hmm. and not let it be some obscure thing. Okay. Yeah. That's not my own term, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) I like that, though. (laughs) I know, right. It says so much, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, Hoppa-hoppa-land. Okay, so may I ask you the next question? Yeah, sure. Uh, So how do you support your clients in moving past these obstacles? Mm -hmm. Well, so, uh,
2: you know, for me, there was a moment in my own journey where, you know, I had been talking to different people. I had gone to therapy. I had read books and, you know, the idea of, you know, you're a survivor, you're going to make it. I I, I just remember one day very clearly thinking to myself, you know, I do not want to survive my life. I really would like to live it. Mm -hmm. And that thought just struck me to my core and really set off, you know, an exploration and to find a way to live powerfully and authentically free from the burdens of the past, free from the effects of the abuse. And, um, you know, for me, this has really become part of my, you know, bigger goal in working with survivors is to start changing the mentality and the social, the the bigger social mentality that abuse is a lifelong problem. It's like a life sentence. And so, you know, I began reading a lot. I began studying um, and, what I noticed was that I was starting to draw the connections between my present day behavior and ideas about who I was and how that was connected to the abuse. So I was getting kind of a meta level understanding, right? Like, okay, I get why I keep doing this same thing or I understand why it's hard for me to trust people. But the critical question that wasn't being answered by any of the books, any of the counselors, any of the groups was, so what do I do about it? right? <laughs> and that to me was the most important question. And so my program beyond surviving is my answer to that question. And it's just a, a conglomeration of all of the different things that I've learned through the years and while completing my master's in counseling psychology. And so it's, it's, um, it's basically 16 sessions that can be thought of, in more kind of big ideas, five kind of big idea topics that need to be dealt with. Mm.
1: So, Can you give as us an example p- of what one or two of those topics might be?
2: So the individual topics might be things like um, paying attention to your thought life, like what's going on in, um, in your mind, like what are the patterns of thinking that are going on there. Um, we also cover just the family relationship, the family system. And you know, dealing with issues like abandonment, vulnerability, um, that lesson about payoffs and cost is in there. Mm-hmm. So all of this kind of comes down into kind of five main areas. The first thing that is important to do to start kind of this real journey of recovery towards beyond surviving, to my mind, is first of all understanding how the brain is wired as a result of trauma. Mm-hmm. So part of my study and part of my curiosity led me into neuroscience, led me into studying the brain, um, because I felt like there had to be something else going on besides just emotion, right, or the way I feel about things. And coming to understand that the brain is truly wired and set up in a very particular way as a result of abuse, that was really freeing to me, because part of it was like, okay, okay. I keep going left even though I want to go right and part of that is because my brain is just wired to go left and then what do I do about that so then there was something that I could actually really latch on to and think about and work on and so I began studying how do you go about kind of challenging the wiring of the brain and breaking those you know connections Mm -hmm. so that you can actually go right instead of left and uh So once that's done, um, unveiling and discovering those false beliefs, like what actual wiring is there, um, what are your patterns? Do you always go to, I'm worthless? Do you always go to, I'm never going to get any better? Uh, Being with other people is dangerous. You know, what are the actual false beliefs that are sitting there that are keeping you stuck, that are keeping you from moving forward? Something like I can't make a difference is a big one that prevents people from finding their purpose. I don't know
1: how is a big one that I get. I don't know how.
2: Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so then I teach some techniques for, you know, breaking those patterns, um, which then lets us kind of get on to the fourth step, which is dealing with the emotional and relational impacts of abuse. Mm -hmm. Um, And then getting to that final step of moving on and getting some closure around it. And that may or may not involve having a conversation with the abuser, but you know, we get there and, and we have that conversation to decide if that's a good choice for them. But yeah, because
1: sometimes the abuser is no longer alive. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So
2: in which case, sometimes we discuss like um, a simulated conversation, right. If they want to do that. Yeah. So
1: you know, essentially, for, for somebody oh, who's in a uh, a marriage where, um, let me get my head around my thoughts here, where the wife is a nag, we'll mm-hmm. say, uh, and even though the husband is an optimist and wants to do this and wants to do that, you know, here's my new job. There's this consistent nagging going on, which is its mm-hmm. own form of abuse because it is belittling. Do you mm-hmm. also teach people how to live with that within their own boundaries, or do you assist them in how to making that? how to change that nagging situation Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. well so in that circumstance if the you know the husband is my client i cannot make the wife stop nagging (laughs) so we have no control over her behavior right she's going to do what she's going to do however his relationship to her being a nag may be just the problem that he thinks of her as being a nag Mm -hmm. right um, so a lot of times, you know, the way that we frame who somebody else is being or why they're doing what they're doing impacts our relationship to that. So I'd first want to explore maybe she's not even really nagging, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, maybe it's coming from a place of love. Maybe it's coming from a place of concern. Maybe it's coming from a place of fear. Mm-hmm. And, and working with him to identify some of those alternative explanations, mm-hmm. And then how to get into clear communication, right? Yeah, because
1: he may have a pattern from some previous abuse, maybe a parent who belittled him, and so he's continued Mm -hmm. this pattern of abuse, even though he may love his wife very much. So it it may be her, it may be him. We really don't know. Right. Yeah. That's right. That makes sense. Yeah.
2: And, you know, our perception and the way that we're framing things is very important. So if, for instance, he has the the belief of, you know, if people correct me, it means, you know, that they're belittling me or if people remind me of something and it could be tied to his past experience, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, for an example, I had a, a client who had this idea that men were just always going to be out to manipulate her mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of be patronizing towards her mm-hmm. And she was telling me the story of a guy who showed up for a first date with flowers and she just wanted to close the door and just call (laughs) off the date altogether. And I was like, "What? well, I said, were they ugly flowers? Like (laughs) what's going on here? She's like, no, that's how patronizing is that? That he thinks he can just show up with flowers and, you know, just have me. And I thought, yeah, I mean, you're her. She was so committed and so wired to look for manipulation, Mm -hmm. to look for patronizing that even flowers on the first date got dumped into that category. Wow, right,
1: that is stunning. So, yeah. So, if we could wrap up this third this third step with your best tip about how to an easy way to move beyond an obstacle, mm-hmm. do you have a tip for us?
2: Well, I I was thinking that what I might do um, is kind of an exercise that I do with a lot of my clients around choosing powerfully because I think that at the bottom of a lot of finding our purpose and embracing our purpose is just making choices, right? Not being stuck in just limbo land of I don't know which direction to go in, right? So I thought if you're game, I might just demonstrate this little quick exercise. I love Um, exercises. (laughs) Okay. All right. So um, we're just going to enter the world of choosing powerfully and we're going to s- explore your relationship to choosing. And so I'm going to give you an option between two things and I just want to want you to tell me which one you would choose. okay? Okay? All right, so um, I'm giving you the choice between chocolate ice cream and vanilla ice cream. Chocolate. Which one would you like? Chocolate.
1: <laughs> Sorry didn't <interrupt> okay. you. <laughs> no, it's okay. I didn't, have I didn't even have to hear the second option. <laughs> and uh, why would you choose chocolate? I didn't even have to think about it. It wasn't a choice. It was like, oh, I get it. It wasn't even a choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I'm wired for chocolate. <laughs> uh huh. Okay. Really.
2: So let's do it. let's do it again. Okay. So I'm going to give you the choice between chocolate and vanilla ice cream. Which one would you choose? Chocolate. And why would you choose chocolate?
1: Because I just chose it. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I that's right. Exercise. That's right. Yeah.
2: yeah. Good, me.
1: Yeah. Right. That's
2: right. And so you know that's the idea that a lot of times what happens with um, people who don't have a powerful relationship to choosing as you do is they give the first reason. Well, it's creamier, right? And then when you ask them again, well, I don't know. I think maybe because, and so the more you press, the the harder it is for them. They feel like they have to justify, right? The more reasons and excuses they have to give. So the idea here is that sometimes just being able to say, well, I chose this job because I chose this job, yeah. right? Yeah. And just let it be that, and then be in it. See how you experience it. See if it is a good fit for you. But just choose, right? And without the fear that you're going to have to um, justify it, you know, make it sound reasonable. Give all the good and perfect reasons why you're there. It's just what you chose,
1: right? And I didn't have to ask any questions like, "Well, does it come on a cone? You know, do I have to have it today, or is it?" Yeah,
0: (laughs) that's right. (laughs) It was just a
1: simple, easy, yeah. So funny, yeah. but I can totally see where somebody could sit in agony over that choice for an hour <laughs> before yeah. giving an answer.
2: It's so true. How it's so true? Is that?
1: I love that exercise. <laughs> okay, good. So that that's excellent. That's an excellent tip for that section. I appreciate that. All right. So number four, uh, what has your experience been like? Um, and how did you clear the way to find your own purpose? Right.
2: Well, I think aside from the things that I've been talking about so far, um, really challenging my own, you know, kind of patterns of negative thinking and behavior um, using these techniques. Um, I think one of the biggest things that happened for me was when I realized that I don't have a purpose, but that I have a lot of purposes mm-hmm. and that my purpose will evolve and grow and change as I grow and change, right? And I think what happened for me when I came upon that idea and made that shift was instead of finding my purpose being a chore Mm -hmm. and something that I needed to get done and check off the list, that purpose became playful and full of possibilities. And I knew that I couldn't necessarily make a wrong choice because I'm evolving, I'm changing. Thank you for tuning in and joining us today. Don't forget to visit www.rachelgrantcoaching.com to learn more about sexual abuse recovery coaching and to explore the other resources available on the site. And please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. We have much more to share with you. Until next time, please take care of you.